Brought to you by Leave the Ring Network. All boxing, no filter. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, okay. It is Tuesday, July 2nd, and this is the Fistionados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistianatos at yahoo.com or follow me on Twitter at fistianatospod. We are also brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. Given that it's a holiday week and I'm going to do a deep dive on Canelo and what's happening in that whole world, which is a fluid world at this point. We keep seeing new updates every day. Let's just get right into it. I mean, like I said, Canelo is essentially holding up boxing at three different weight classes and legitimately legitimately putting DAZN's business plan at risk with what he's talking about doing here. Um, let's get through the review section first, though, and then we'll dive into it. So on Friday, June 21st from Indio, California, on to zone, we had Andrew Cancio proving that the first fight wasn't a fluke, winning by KO3 against Alberto Machado in the rematch. Also on the card, Elwin Soto wins by KO12 in a controversial stoppage. Uh, let's talk about Cancio. He's a great story. We saw... Really similar versions of the story all over the place leading up to the fight. But for Andrew Cancio's sake, I don't actually want to see this story again. I want him to do something about his day job. Quit it. Take a leave of absence. There's too much money at stake here. I mean, I don't know what his contract calls for, like how many more fights and what his guaranteed minimums are. But it, I saw it, he only got paid 150 grand. it looked like, for this, or that was what was reported he made 75 for the first fight. I mean, it is a great story to say that you're a blue-collar guy with a day job, but like that's not really the way to be a professional athlete. Uh, I mean, in the stories we saw stuff that he, you know, operating a jackhammer was great for his strength, and, and I'm sure it is great for that, but there are many other important parts to being a professional athlete. I actually think one of the most important ones is sleeping correctly. Uh, if you look at the NBA and the NFL, they have like in the top echelons of professional soccer, they, there is a real science to this. And for someone like Cancio, given how old he is in the next three to four years of his life, if he maximizes his earnings as a fighter, he'll likely earn more in those next three to four years than he will in 20 years at the Southern California gas company, which is, I think where he's employed. I know he's probably worried about the steady paycheck and other person. And, you know, full disclosure, I don't know how many more fights he has on his contract. And it sounds like Golden Boy essentially has him on a deal that's really beneficial for Golden Boy. Uh, But he, 
I mean, he, he, he needs to quit his job, basically. If, if he's worried about this stuff, most big companies, and I think especially in this case where he actually brings publicity to the company, they'll allow you to not quit and take a leave of absence where you don't get paid, but you can, you're still with the company. Like sometimes they even allow you to keep your benefits. Like I'm not going to get into all that stuff. I'm sure healthcare for his kids is a concern of his and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to get into all that. What really matters though, is at least for Cancio's career and, and his earnings as a professional boxer, it's okay. He got the Machado fight. He won. He got the rematch. He won. And, and clearly those were at pre, you know, pre, they figured out the, the salaries, predetermined salaries. Let's just say that for purses for those two fights. What does he do next? I mean, apparently he might have to fight Rene Alvarado, maybe, you know, in the fall or something like that as a mandatory, but there's fights out there that can probably, and I don't know what he'd get paid for that. There's fights out there that are probably seven figure fights for him if he does them. And he, he needs to be prepared for those fights because look, he was prepared for Machado, but he needs to make sure he's really prepared for those. Cause if he wins those, I mean, he, he's going to earn seven figures multiple times. And that's just, there is no replacement for that. You can buy your house. You can live a great life. You know, do whatever he's going to do. This isn't a slight on blue-collar work. This is not a slight on the stories that were actually written about him. This is just me saying, do this for your career, Andrew. Okay, let's move on to Sunday, June 23rd, where Fox and the PBC were going to put on what was going to be a really good fight with the Harrison-Charlo rematch. It ended up being Jermel Charlo winning by... KO3 against Jorge Cota at junior middleweight. <clears throat> also on the card, Guillermo Rigondeau won by KO8 against Julio Ceja, and Joey Spencer wins a unanimous decision against Akeem Black. The show average, it averages just over 1.2 million viewers for the duration, with the main event peaking at over 1.8 million viewers. The prelims aired on Big Fox in the hour preceding this, and they averaged 836,000 viewers. Tough circumstances for Fox, but we are starting to see more and more evidence that Sunday night is just not the night to air boxing. Uh, this is a pretty low average when you compare it to other Saturday nights, although the peak is not terrible compared to what Fox has been doing on Saturday nights for some of their fights so far. The peak really, and, and you know, I've gone through this a lot. You know, the peak doesn't matter as much for ad sales as the duration of the whole fight because you're essentially whatever, two and a half hours, let's call it that. So, you know, somewhere between two and three hours is what you're doing and you're selling ads on for the whole fight. But at least there's evidence that for the 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 name on the card, you, you saw some audience. Uh, but the context here, and, and this is not me criticizing Fox, it's sort of me giving an excuse for that. I mean, the context here is Sunday night is just a much... There's a much higher bar for overall viewership. I mean, it, it moves the bar dramatically. I mean, like the like usually you do numbers like this on Saturday nights, and there's actually some comparable shows to it. Like, you're not blown out of the water. I mean, here the only comparable show in terms of total viewership was NBC airing a rerun of Hollywood Game Night that's still beatboxing, um, but it was on at 7 p.m., and it, and it got like 
over 1.7 million viewers. And I mean, to even be totally fair, PBC actually beat it in adults 18 to 49. Uh, everything else, though, beats boxing by multiples of viewers and including a lot of reruns. And, and I mean, like multiples of viewers, sometimes like five times as many viewers. So, like, part of that is just on network TV, especially. And I think for ESPN, too. But I think especially for network TV, Sunday night is just a tough one. And you should not, there probably should not, I think we've seen enough evidence, let's not do boxing on Sunday night. You know, in terms of what this actually means for the fighters, I mean, not much. I mean, you don't really fault Charlo much. This was supposed to be his big rematch, you know. I think the key thing here is he's just got to be willing to go right back into camp when Harrison's ready. I'm assuming they'll get that uh, fight done in the fall. It's a worthy fight. You know, Rigando, I mean, oh, man, like, look, he was great TV for this. And he's I think he's the only fighter like this anymore. I literally don't watch him fight anymore live. I look on social media and see if his fight was exciting or not before I watch it. Um, and I, I don't really do that for anybody else. I mean, every other fight, if I don't watch live... I actually just stay off social media and watch it as if it was live. So I don't know the outcome. Uh, but, you know, Rigando, obviously, his reputation precedes him. But good good on him for winning this fight. I mean, probably a premature stoppage, too. There were two of them this weekend. Other podcasts have covered it. Um, I've kind of made, you know, my stance on this is always, well, actually, look, the interesting point here. I think there's people like me, and I'm kind of in the stance of, Better to stop the fight early than to stop it late. I think these two were early stoppages. Uh, but what I will say in counter to that is, um, if it, boxing is not set up, UFC is kind of set up so that if you stop the fight early, it doesn't penalize the fighter as much. Boxing is not set up that way. If you stop the fight early, the fighter, the, the guy who loses may not actually get another opportunity. Like, we don't know. We may never see Seha again, even though he delivered a great fight on TV, or we may not see him in a meaningful fight again. Uh, and and I hope on the DAZN uh, fight that we do see, you know, we do see a rematch. They've been talking about a rematch, but it could hurt, you know, to the way most contracts work in boxing. If you lose one of the titles or if, or, or if you lose an eliminator like that, your pay goes down dramatically. And... Network execs, if we're going to take the attitude that you're going to stop fights early because it's for fighters' health, for fighter health, then network execs need to say, well, if this fighter made good TV, then they get paid for their next fight. You know, and and that's that's something just sort of just a holistic observation on early stoppages that I think not. You know, this is this is something where. The culture needs to be set properly in the sport if we're going to see it. Otherwise, you know what? Let the guys fight. I mean, if, if it really means that much, these are not big weight classes. These are weight classes where you don't get a whole lot of opportunities. And, yes, fighter health is important. But, you know, these can be big. These early stoppages can have big effects on, on these guys' careers. So, anyways, let's move on. <clears throat> Friday, June 28th on ESPN from Temecula, California. We have Richard Comey winning by KO10 over Ray Beltran for Comey's IBF lightweight title. Also on the card, Carlos Adamas wins the unanimous decision against Patrick Day at junior middleweight. 
The fight card averages 490,000 viewers. It was the 28th rated cable show of the day. It's really not a good rating for top rank. Uh, further context here, it follows the O.J. Simpson doc on ESPN, which didn't even make the top 150 rated cable shows of the day. So it actually, to give it some credit, it actually built an audience on almost nothing. It was on Friday instead of Saturday night. And I mean, Sunday night is clearly not a good night for boxing. We have seen successes on Friday night in the past year or so. They're usually in conjunction with another sporting event, not a documentary. And I think like, especially old school boxing fans, they're a little bit more conditioned to think of Friday night as a potential night for boxing. I mean, Showbox still does their stuff on Friday night. ESPN obviously used to have Friday night fights. The rating overall, it's not, I mean, look, to finish in the top 40 even of cable shows, it's not terrible. It's not great. 28th isn't great. It's not terrible. Um, Friday night's almost as bad of a night as Saturday night for TV. They're clearly the two worst. Uh, but you know, look, going back to the overall number is not good. Um, this is now a few bad ratings in, or, you know, in aggregate for top rank on their ESPN shows this year. And this probably would have even been the subject for my deep dive. I'm going to do the Canelo stuff instead. I just felt like that was more noteworthy. And, and look here, the, the other note is that, and I think this is, I don't know whether, let's call this a missed opportunity that just needs to get figured out. The following night, on Saturday night, uh, the UFC put on a show that averaged over 1 million viewers. It got one point, you know, almost 1.1 million viewers. It was the number two cable show of the night. All the other top four shows were soccer. And the UFC prelims actually averaged 553,000 viewers and was the number 26 show of the day on, on that Saturday. And... We've talked about this before in other episodes. I know that ESPN has combined top rank boxing with UFC for certain shows. Usually it's a, it's when the UFC is doing a pay-per-view and they show the prelims from 8 to 10 and then show box top rank boxing right after that. And it's a little bit easier to schedule that because you know that for a pay-per-view show, that goes live at 10. You're, you're, the prelims are going to be over from 8 to 10, so you can start top rank boxing right on time. But... Look, I think, I mean, this show started at 9. I'm not actually sure when it ended, but you could probably have started it at 8. Maybe it ends at 10, 15, or 10, 30, or something like that. But you could start the boxing then. Uh, and, and Top Rank probably would have done a much better audience than, than doing it on Friday night. There were other less significant fights on Friday, but let's move on to Saturday, uh, the 29th, from Houston, on Showtime. Jamal Charlo beats Brandon Adams by unanimous decision. Also on the card, Erickson Lubin wins by KO4 versus Zakaria 2. And Claudio Marrero wins a close unanimous decision over Eduardo Ramirez in a featherweight title eliminator. The main event for Showtime averages 379,000 viewers. It is the number 84 cable show of the day. The other fights do not do that well. Most of the viewership numbers I saw is like mid-200s for most of it. And just to continue the theme here, it's a, like not a great rating for Showtime. And like almost everything else in this sort of review section, just just not a not an outstanding lineup of fights. I mean, Brandon Adams did actually acquit himself okay. Uh, and this goes back to the deep dive episode I did last episode. Like, 
what are we doing here in in terms of overall strategy for Showtime? Like, why why do we have these fights? What do they lead to? I mean, this is a thing, and and again, this is probably more just hacking on last episode. Like the way Showtime broadcasts its fights, like you need to be prepared to sit down and devote some serious time to it because they do a lot of fight, like a lot of content on the fighters in between each fights. It's really high level production, like no doubt. I mean, but then you go back, it's like, why did we need the Lubin fight? Like what, what is that? What, what does that fight? I mean, that was, it was just not even remotely competitive. Even the opening fight, like it wasn't bad, but like, what does it lead to? Like, why are we watching it? This was the thing, and, and I don't want to harp just on Showtime. Um, this was basically the theme of all the fights for the last two weeks. You know, you go back to in the world of just HBO and Showtime, it'd be one thing to like constantly do all these pieces on the fighters. And, and, and the Zones broadcast does this too, by the way. But <clears throat> when you're doing this on a night, there's a good UFC card, or at least there's a good main event for you for UFC on ESPN. There's another fight on DAZN, which we'll get to in a second. There's boxing the night before on ESPN. Obviously, there's boxing on Showtime. Nothing's nothing's breaking through here. Like this isn't a criticism of Show. It's a criticize, criticism of all three between DAZN, ESPN, Showtime. Nothing is breaking through here. It shows in the ratings too. So getting to that final card. On Saturday the 29th, from Providence, on DAZN, we have Demetrius Andre defeating Maciej Suletsky by wide unanimous decision, retaining his WBO middleweight title. Also on the card, Joseph Parker wins by KO10 versus Alex Leopai at heavyweight. Khaled Yafai beats Norberto Jimenez by wide unanimous decision to retain his WBA junior bantamweight title. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because the deep dive is long and... Like I just said, the same sentiment that I've had here goes for this card, too. It showed in the buildup. Now, this did, I mean, look, it, it it did seem to have a crowd. I guess it was Andre's first time really fighting in Providence. Uh, uh, you know, nothing broke through, though, in terms of building press, in terms of marketing the fights, in terms of just promoting the fights in general. And you can understand why. I mean, it, you know, there was nothing super noteworthy. What happens next for these guys? Like, at least Andre called out Canelo and Triple G. Like, Parker needs to fight someone who can test him better. But, look, this is a fine rebound fight for him. You know, Yafai was fun to watch. And I would like to see him in there with some of the bigger names he called out. The Chocolatitos, the Estradas, the Sorongi size, etc. But all of these fights, and this is something I've harped on. I will continue to harp on it. there is to to watch basically a bunch of not really competitive fights and a couple of lower level fun TV fights. You know, maybe there's one or two of those. Maybe 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 decent TV. Let's call it that. But nothing outstanding. You had to sit through like nine hours of fights or eight hours of fights for that. So you know, not enough curation. And, and, and nothing is breaking through. Anyways, <clears throat> let's move on to the deep dive. 
Let's talk about what's happening. And this is actually fun. I, I don't want to be too negative on the past two weeks. I, I don't think anyone really anticipated going into it that it, that they would be major, major fights for that matter. But let's talk about what what's going on right now with Canelo's decision process. This is a crazy sequence of events that on the surface seems like it's really all about Canelo asserting his will on pretty much everyone who relies on him. And, you know, there are ripple effects that touch almost the entire industry at this point. I mean, we've talked a lot about the heavyweight division, and I think we're about to talk a lot about the welterweight division because we've got a bunch of pay-per-view fights lined up there. Middleweight is the other division that's a glamour division. It's the other big money division. It's the other division that sets the tone. All these events don't happen in a vacuum either. Like These divisions are big ticket items that literally bring the entire business to a standstill uh, until the decisions get made at the top. And we're really seeing that right now with Canelo. Canelo has that power. And what's unique about this situation is how he's looking at all his options. It's really different than most, than than many other times in his career. And really in recent memory, I mean, he's looking at a potential matchup at middleweight with Triple G, when it's super middleweight with Callum Smith, and then when at light heavyweight with Kovalev. And what I want to do here is look at the ramifications, you know, and, and the ripple effects of what happens depending on what choice he makes. Because traditionally, when the top dog in the sport makes a decision, it's usually a much different scenario. Like it's usually, <coughs> excuse me, it's usually Floyd picking one of three or four welterweights that are all in the same weight class or will move to his weight class easily and of a certain profile. And that usually means that the lucky of the winner, you know, the lucky winner of that sweepstakes gets a payday several multiples, like maybe three, four, maybe even five times as large as their usual payday. So it's a really big payday for the lucky guy who gets the fight. But usually everyone else just once that selection's made goes back to finding another opponent in their weight class, whatever, a mandatory fight, a slightly bigger payday and a big fight on HBO maybe or Showtime, something like that. Canelo's literally holding up three weight classes, possibly affecting two different platforms and putting, quite frankly, a lot of that DAZN money in serious peril right now. So one of the first points to make here is that if you are looking at this from Canelo's point of view, there are multiple ways to look at it. But the way that most fans or journalists look at it is through the narrative of his career, not the narrative of DAZN's business model. And this is really important because in the past, whether it's Canelo or Floyd or Manny or whoever, choosing a lucky pay-per-view opponent or coming together to make a big money fight, like it's never affected the actual content provider or distributor in a real way. Like in the HBO Showtime world of boxing, the fight was, you know, if if there was a fight, it was usually like a business fight. I mean, not an actual fight in the ring. If there was a fight, it was usually over which company was going to distribute the pay-per-view or how long of a deal could you get or how good of a deal could you get from HBO or Showtime? Like who was going to get the fighter? You know, if you signed with one of the places, 
you're looking at a few different opponents or whatever. Like back when Canelo was looking at a few different opponents and he picked Liam Smith or Floyd was doing the same thing and he picked Maidana, like HBO and Showtime, I mean, they certainly had opinions on which opponents were better or worse for them as a network, but nothing really affected the company at large. Like HBO and Showtime weren't going out of business or they weren't even taking it a noticeable financial hit at all, depending on, on how it goes. I mean, worst case scenario, whoever was the top exec in the sports department, like they might get upset or they might look bad a little bit internally, or maybe there was some bad press surrounding it or something like that. But HBO and Showtime weren't going anywhere. And that's not the case with DAZN here. When DAZN got Canelo and then they went out and spent a ton of money to sign Triple G, they had to assume that within a very short time frame, they would get the third fight between these guys. And that hopefully, if it was close or controversial, they'd actually get a fourth, too. <clears throat> Those fights are subscription drivers. People on the street who don't know what DAZN is figure it out so they can watch those fights. Those are people who range from like the core fan base to people who might only watch boxing two or three times a year or whatever. Like they range from people who fully understand streaming to people who just assume like that the only way to get to watch any fights on pay-per-view level is to turn on your cable box and, and hit the order button. But like when you make those fights, people figure out how to watch them. We've talked about the DAZN business model a lot here on this podcast because it's one of the most interesting things happening, you know, kind of in the sports industry in general right now, much less boxing, but certainly in boxing. Boxing is definitely what they're using right now to prop up their subscription numbers, and they aren't doing it to make a profit on boxing. They're doing it to hit that large enough subscription base to the point where other major leagues need to take them seriously as a content provider and then swoop in for a contract with one of those top leagues. I've been over that on this podcast a bunch. Like, we don't need to rehash all that right now. But the issue that has really come up with this Canelo decision, so to speak, is that time is potentially even more valuable to DAZN than money. And that's significant. In their perfect world, they need that Triple G Canelo rematch or whatever third fight to happen this September, not next May. Because in terms of their big fight schedule, they know that in November or December, there will be a big heavyweight rematch between AJ and Ruiz. In terms of thinking about your business like six months at a time, like those two fights are cornerstone fights. I mean, even, even if Canelo is a little bit hurt or whatever, and he's not going to fight in September, just to have two big fights like that in the fall, I mean, those are cornerstones. Like, yes, you still really have to be smart about what you do in the margins. I mean, the NFL analogy here is like, that's your quarterback and your pass rusher. And I mean, yes, you do need to nail your late round draft picks, obviously. Like, for the NBA, you're seeing it with free agency right now. Like, even if you get one or two big stars, what happens after you get the stars on the, on the margin still matters a lot. Like, you get it. There still needs to be good fights. But Big fights like this, if you schedule them out really well, you need enough of them throughout the year that people, you know, they sort of first figure out what DAZN is. And then I think, you know, I think between the Canelo Jacobs fight and the Ruiz upset over Joshua, like that has happened in 2019 as much as DAZN could have hoped for. 
And I mean, look, on the yes, they benefited also because there's a heavyweight resurgence, and ESPN and Fox have a larger vested interest in just covering the division. Like everybody's invested into it. Not that they want their guys fighting on DAZN, but at least for brand awareness, yes, it's out there. Like, what happens if you don't have that Canelo Triple G three fight in place? Like, what are the wins over replacement values of that fight versus the other options? And more importantly, what happens next for everyone else? Because when DAZN got Canelo in the fold, they also had to spend a lot of money to get everyone else in the fold too. Triple G and Danny Jacobs did not come cheap. If you look at it purely just from the purses, like Demetrius Andre is not as expensive as those guys, but like we've seen a lot of Demetrius Andre since he's been with DAZN. And not too long ago, Andre was a low-cost, sporadic undercard fighter on premium pay, pay, uh, pay cable. So if you're DAZN, like, it's a bit of a leap to say that Demetrius Andre fights in the main event are the reason that you should subscribe. Like, people aren't going to subscribe for that. Obviously, the overall point here is that in addition to making a substantial investment in Canelo and Golden Boy, DAZN has also had to make a big investment in the middleweight division at large. So Canelo's spurning Triple G has much larger ramifications. <clears throat> so we'll get to that, but first let's look at the other potential opponents for Canelo really quickly just to set the stage here and give a point of comparison. Because it really, when you look at DAZN's business model, it comes back to that question, like how much more valuable is a Triple G fight with Canelo than Callum Smith or Sergey Kovalev? Let's first look at Callum Smith. He's 26-0 with 19 KOs. And the fact that I need to even list his record to the people listening to this podcast should tell you something. I mean, if you're a hardcore boxing fan or if you care about the narrative, you know, only the narrative of Canelo's career, this fight makes a lot of sense. Like, maybe it's not next, but at some point soon, you're like, you don't want to see this. Callum Smith, he won the World Boxing Super Series at Super Middleweight last year, and he's really talented. Like, when you watch him fight, he's got a lot of tools. He's got a really big frame. He's able to rip off snapping punches. He's really an accurate puncher. And he's got the athletic tools to compete at the highest level. He's got solid defense. He controls the action in the ring. He's, like, really calm. You could probably make a super hipster argument that he's actually the most talented fighter in England right now. If if you're purely looking at the matchup in the ring, against with Smith versus Canelo, it's a good matchup. I mean, early odds makers have put Canelo out there as like less than a two to one favorite. And I don't disagree with those odds at all. I mean, this is a close fight. There are a number of pathways to Smith beating Canelo, especially when you consider how difficult it might be for Canelo to close the distance against Smith. Like this, you know, this isn't just Smith staying on the outside either as his only pathway to victory. Like, he's a technical enough boxer that he might be able to hang with Canelo in the exchanges. You know, I wouldn't favor him in those, but he's good enough that he might not just have one pathway to victory. Outside the ring, when you think of how to promote the fight, like, okay, there's a couple good angles. You can almost legitimately say that Canelo is moving up to fight the best guy at 168. I mean, you could you could probably say it, and, and so Canelo is the king of two divisions instead of one. 
you can play up the fact that Canelo's fought his brother, which might help sell the fight and sort of give some, you can, some kind of family revenge angle. Like, those are obvious things. And to the hardcore fans, mostly based on what I just described above, you can make a, a really good argument that this is a top-level fight in the ring and you should be able to get the core base very excited. But there's a lot of challenges here, too. I mean, if you look at the most natural comp to this fight on pay-per-view, which was when Canelo fought his brother, that fight was one of the lower pay-per-view buy rates that Canelo's ever done. I mean, depending on what report you read, it was probably in the 300,000 buy range. And that was earlier in Canelo's career. Calum Smith is better, or at least looked at as a better fighter with a higher profile than, than his brother. But that doesn't change the fact that in the United States, the casual boxing fan really doesn't know either Callum or his brother that well. Callum's resume doesn't have a name familiar to most casual U.S. boxing fans at all. I mean, maybe they've heard of George Groves or Hassan Emdam. Maybe. They've never heard of, like, Nicky Holtzkin or Eric Skokland. Maybe they've heard of Rocky Fielding, but only because Canelo destroyed him. And I think this brings up a major point. Like, how good is Callum Smith's resume? He passes the eye test in the ring pretty well. But as Teddy, Teddy Atlas would say, like, against who? He won the World Boxing Super Series, but George Groves retired after that fight. And there isn't another fighter on his resume where you would definitely say, like, wow, that's a complete stud. 168 isn't exactly the most loaded weight class in terms of superstar names, but even casual boxing fans might be able to recognize Caleb Plant or Anthony Durrell or David Benavides at this point. And there's other guys out there, mostly in the PVC universe, that are worthy guys. <clears throat> so when you start to poke holes in the fight, it's kind of getting easier to see why DAZN wouldn't want it yet. Yet, I mean, Smith has only fought once in the U.S. It was the main undercard for the A.J. Ruiz fight. I mean, most press, they haven't written about him in major publications outside of the hardcore boxing ones. Even most core fans, like most core boxing fans in the U.S. have seen him fight once or twice, or maybe even never. And there is no question this fight would struggle at the box office if it was on pay-per-view. I mean, like, we're talking only Canelo's core fan base is going to buy this fight. And I don't know what that is at this point. I would guess it's something like five or 600,000 pay-per-view buys. It makes you wonder, would this fight even drive subscriptions at all? I'm not sure it would. It might reduce churn. It might help a little bit. But Callum Smith is probably the most unrecognizable name out there that Canelo would consider fighting. I mean, I would say he should have another fight or two in the U.S. if I was managing Canelo's career before he got the fight. It is a really good fight in the ring, and it's a good opportunity to make the claim that Canelo is the best at 168. But look, for me, the juice, the juice is not close to worth the squeeze at this point. Like, it's not a box office draw. Even with Golden Boy, it'll probably affect their bottom line. I mean, not on the overall deal, because there's clearly a minimum amount of money that Canelo gets. And it sounds like from the reporting that he doesn't see that much upside outside of his minimum. 
at least in terms of TV broadcasting revenue. But this is certainly not worth DAZN putting in any extra. It's not a big ticket seller. You probably don't see that much money from the gate if you're Golden Boy. I mean, if I was in charge of Smith's career on the other side, like obviously you take the Canelo fight whenever you get the opportunity, but in a perfect scenario, it doesn't even come next for Smith. Like you were just out of the ring injured after winning the World Boxing Super Series, and there's actually some good fights in the UK for you if you want them. Like we've heard rumors of an offer to fight BJ Sanders on UK pay-per-view. There's Eubank Jr., there's John Ryder for whatever that's worth. The bigger thing here is that you probably need another fight in the U.S. to get some exposure. And it might not even be a bad idea to fight B.J. Saunders just to get in the ring with someone that slick of a fighter to help you prepare for Canelo. I realize that Saunders is a southpaw and Canelo's not. But, you know, if you Canelo comes up to fight at 168, like, you're clearly the easiest high-level fight for Canelo to make. You got to figure that on the DAZN platform, everyone's going to favor you getting the fight over any of those PBC guys. So you can actually probably wait on the opportunity as of right now because Canelo clearly wants to move up to 168. At some point soon. Okay, let's look at Kovalev. There are a lot of ramifications if Canelo were to do this fight, but first let's look at how you can sell it. This is a much easier sell than Callum Smith. Like, let's be clear about that. It would definitely do more pay-per-view buys if we were in that universe, and there are a lot better ways to sell it. I mean, Kovalev isn't a commercial superstar, but he has a very established name in the U.S., and he's actually fought on pay-per-view before. Not really as a huge commercial success, but at least he's done two pay-per-view fights. And he was a legit TV star for HBO back in the day in the build-up to the Ward fights, and his resume is totally legit. In the build-up to Ward, he essentially cleaned out light heavyweight except for Adonis Stevenson. And by most accounts, or by many accounts, you can actually say he beat Ward in the first fight. Like, there is probably a, you know, going back to the boxing hipster arguments, there's probably a boxing hipster argument out there that, especially if you look at the the, the Triple G haters, that Kovalev's resume is actually just as good, if not better, than Triple G's. I mean, I'm not sure I would agree with that, but... Either way, his resume is much stronger than Smith's. So you, at the very least, have a recognized dance partner for Canelo that's much easier to sell. You also have that dare-to-be-great element for Canelo that I mentioned above for Smith, but like this time Canelo would be moving up two weight classes and 15 pounds. Like That's a huge risk for a variety of reasons. I mean, especially if you're going to do it in a healthy way, more on that later. But in terms of the sell, I mean, that's a great selling point. Like, you can legit say that Kovalev is also the most established light heavyweight in the world right now that's active. I mean, he might not be the best one. Uh, you, can, you could probably make an argument he's the best one. He certainly looked great in his last fight against February at a time when most people, including myself, were doubting him. Kovalev also has had a lot of bad and weird press out there. But you could actually almost make that work for you in the fight if Canelo really wants to be the hero and turn Kovalev into, like, a willing villain. And for me, the ceiling for this fight is really high. Like, you could almost do a 
sort of a smaller boxing version of what the UFC turned McGregor into Nate Diaz, the first one, into. But let's be clear, like, that's the ceiling, and it probably doesn't approach that in terms of what the fight means. I mean, the floor is much lower than that. I mean, it's obviously higher than anything for Smith, really. I think the, you know, the floor here is if Kovalev doesn't train much and a lot of the bad press gets recycled in the wrong way. And then, you know, Kovalev, if he does, if, if Canelo and Kovalev don't get out there that much and, and, you know, Kovalev, remember he wasn't the biggest pay-per-view draw. I mean, if this is a pay-per-view fight, you know, the floor still, it's like, it's pretty high. I mean, you know, even in the worst case scenarios, you'd have to think like, I don't think there's any way it does less than 650. Like it's probably in the 750 to 1 million range, depending on a lot of factors. Like maybe it does less than that. I doubt it. Like I said, like I, it's really tough to see it going lower than 650. I mean, maybe they could just price it wrong and who knows? Like, I, you know, I think once you're in that 85 to hundred dollar range, it gets really tough, but it, you know, if you're comparing this, it probably has about the same floor as Danny Jacobs with a higher ceiling, maybe even by a significant margin, just because I think it's it's easier, it's an easier sell to make based on the personalities and how much we saw of, of Sergei Kovalev, you know, in, in, in the last five years on HBO. But the bottom line, either way, it's like it definitely there's a lot of great ways to sell this fight. So then when you're looking at the Triple G element of it, it's like, what about comparing it to Triple G? Like the second Triple G fight only did 1.1 million buys. And I'm sitting here saying maybe Kovalev even gets to a million with, with Canelo. I think there's some really big differences here worth pointing out. Like I'm on record on this podcast last year saying that the buildup, both in programming and marketing to the second Canelo Triple G fight was truly a stinker. From HBO, I mean, obviously, we know now that HBO is exiting the boxing business, and probably at least at the upper echelons in terms of executives, they knew it well before that event that it was happening. Like you could feel it all the way through from the commitment of the network and the buildup. I thought the price wasn't right. You know, I thought due to a variety of factors that I'm not going to relitigate here. One point million buys was pretty close to the floor of what the fight should have gotten. Its ceiling was definitely much higher, probably upwards of 1.5 million buys, maybe as much as 1.6, 1.7 million buys. I think it should have done in the 1.3, 1.4 million range easily. I think the zone would do a much better job of selling it now that they've been through this whole big fight thing a couple times and they have a lot more at stake than HBO. They would just take it a lot more seriously. I think the price point here. 20 bucks for customers with very little brand awareness of DAZN. Like, I mean, it's sort of with, with, with a third fight between these two guys, it's kind of the equivalent of a big summer movie franchise that just kind of sells itself. You heard it before, you know what it is. And instead of, you know, you just have to watch it on DAZN instead of HBO pay-per-view. It's kind of like, you just need to go to a different movie theater to watch it basically. So, you know, I actually think it's, it's not, even though, like I mentioned above, the second Triple G Canelo fight did 1.1, and I'm sitting here saying Canelo Kovalev could even do a million. I think 
we're t you got to mention those floor ceiling elements and, 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 and give it that kind of context. <clears throat> so it's still not, I think Kovalev, it's still not close. It's, it, it's not anywhere close to what a third Triple G fight would do for DAZN, but it's still a pretty big event for DAZN. Like, I'm not sure how many subs the Kovalev fight would just overall drive. But you have to figure that a lot of the people that signed they, they signed up for DAZN for the Jacob fight and maybe that the jumped out, they would probably jump back in for it. Or they might even order a year-long subscription knowing that they'd also get Ruiz and Anthony Joshua later in the fall or maybe in the same month, depending on when it happens. And they've had the evidence of seeing, okay, well, Canelo fought in May, I can kind of depend on this now, I'm, I'll get another fight in May, like, you, you might get a lot of those kind of customers that are starting to see the value in getting that year-long subscription. I mean, for DAZN, the Kovalev fight purely looked at from a subscription play isn't a complete disaster. It's probably pretty good. I mean, it won't top... Danny Jacobs, just because Danny Jacobs was the first Canelo fight, at least the first real Canelo fight, the first real big Canelo fight, and you have to figure that that was the biggest sign-up day for, for DAZN. It, it won't be the biggest sign-up day, but it's not a total disaster. I, I think Smith could be a total disaster. I mean, that's just... like the, the, It may not be... It, it may be something that in a year or two could be something that is helps on the churn factor. But Kovalev, though, it's nowhere near the home run that having Canelo Triple G3 would be followed by Ruiz AJ2, and that's assuming that they're not in the same month, and it's assuming that AJ Ruiz 2 happens back in New York in U.S. primetime. But when you look at some of the other ramifications that the Kovalev has for the Kovalev fight against Canelo would have for DAZN, oh, that's when you start to ask some really big questions. Like in terms of planning for the future, make no <coughs> make no mistake. Like this is a huge risk for DAZN. Here are some of the big questions that come up. Like first of all, what does DAZN even do at middleweight, considering? The entire reason they invested approximately nine figures in Triple G and a bunch of money in Jacobs and Andre was because they wanted opponents for Canelo, who is carrying their franchise. Like, there's a few permutations here, some of which aren't actually that bad, but probably none of which justify the investment that the zone has put in the in the middleweight weight class. Obviously, the worst case scenario here for DAZN is that they just invested a ton of money in Triple G, and not only will they not get the Canelo Triple G 3 fight next, they definitely won't get a fourth, and they may not get any other big fights at middleweight. And look, like, there's talk of Munguia moving up to 160 and fighting Triple G on Mexican Independence Day weekend in September, and that assumes, of course, that Canelo has kind of an injury to deal with, and he fights Kovalev later in the year. But based on what we've seen from Munguia, I mean, like, that's an early Triple G KO waiting to happen. And, I mean, then, like, with Triple G, like, 
is a fight with Andre even a real big fight? Like, you keep delaying the Canelo fight, and how much does that matter as you as you keep delaying it and move it a year later even? I mean, if Andre ends up, you know, Andre looked really good against Zuleski this weekend. I mean, if he were to get Triple G first and win, that would seriously dampen enthusiasm for Canelo Triple G3. If it isn't Munguia versus Triple G and and you know, and like and like I said, it, it is Andre. Even if he doesn't win, like that fight doesn't drive subs. I mean, it you know, it could be competitive, but it may not be that fun to watch. I mean, Andre is like this he's kinda like a winky right character from fifteen years ago, like where he's like a good opponent, but he doesn't really drive sales at all. And you just know that he's likely going to beat one of your commercial draws out there and then probably not capitalize on it, just in terms of business. I mean, in, in terms of the narrative of Andre's career, that's something totally different. You move on to Danny Jacobs. I mean, Jacobs has openly talked about moving up to 168. I'm not sure how many fights DAZN has with him. It may not be that many more. Like, you probably have to think that a Triple G Jacobs rematch is the biggest fight you could make at middleweight without Canelo, and Jacobs could basically not make that fight and, and leave and move up. Even if you just purely look at that fight, it's not really a sub-driver. I mean, it could possibly lead to nothing, because, <laughs> excuse me, like I said, Jacobs is probably on a shorter deal. He may, you know, he may just take that fight and leave. Andre is his friend. They've kind of openly said they don't really want to fight each other. There really aren't a ton of other big-name fighters at middleweight that you can count on. I mean, Charlo's with PBC, Brandt and Marauder with top-ranking ESPN, and maybe they can get one of those guys to come over, but it probably would cost them a lot. You know, Mungia can come up and wait, and we, we've probably seen him going to do that, but based on what we've seen from him recently, like he, he might only have one or two really big fights in him before he gets exposed. And I could, and we, we could all be wrong on that. He could go in and knock, knock any of these guys out. But you'd have to think, if you're thinking what is likely going to happen with him versus Triple G or him versus Andre, it's probably Andre wins 12 rounds or 10 or 11 rounds. Probably Triple G wins 9 or 10 and knocks him out. Something like that. And yeah, I mean, these are, like, there are pathways to this not being a disaster. I've kind of gone through some of the worst case scenarios. Like, Canelo can come back down after moving up and wait for one fight. But here's the thing, like, all of this is just so much easier if Canelo and Triple G just fight for a third time in December. Or sorry, September. If they do that, and if Canelo wins, he can do what he wants after that. If Triple G wins, you probably have a fourth fight set up that would be highly anticipated. You know, Andre can stay busy and build his profile. And a couple more wins, maybe he fight, maybe he finally fights at a time where the whole weekend the press can be focused on just him. He can get his name out there a little bit more. You know, he could probably fight either after after a third fight or, or a fourth fight and, and it would work out okay. But basically the worst case scenario here is Canelo moves up to late heavyweight and eventually 
168. Jacobs moves up to 168. And all you have at middleweight is Triple G, Munguia, and Andre. And you still need to pay Triple G like 85 million bucks or something like that for five more fights. I mean, Canelo, if Canelo's deciding not to fight him now, he, it's clearly not written in his contract that he needs to fight him. What did you really pay Triple G $85 million for, if that's the case? Like, if Jacobs moves up to 168 and Canelo stays there, we've already seen that. We don't really need to see it again at 168. <clears throat> Moving on to the next issue here. What do you do for with Canelo after this fight? I mean, it would be almost unprecedented and probably dangerous for Canelo to move all the way up to light heavyweight and then move directly back down to middleweight. So I'm assuming that doesn't happen. Canelo probably doesn't have the frame to stay at light heavyweight for a long period of time. And I'm not even sure he'd be favored. You know, 175 is a loaded division. I'm not sure he'd be favored against all those guys. I'm not even sure he'd be favored against Kovalev. You'd have to assume that he'd want to move back down to 168 after winning a title 175. And then you need to start asking other questions like, how long would you stay at 168, and would you ever move back down to middleweight? For the zone specifically, I just went through what middleweight looks like, and, and maybe you can have some of those guys move up. The obvious issues here, though, are that the PBC has most of the U.S. guys, the U.S. based guys at 168, and Top Rank has most of the guys at light heavyweight. You know, like I said, Danny Jacobs moved up to 168. All right, we've already seen that. Is there really a huge demand for a rematch? Dimitri Bivol apparently can make either 168 or 175. Okay, so maybe he's an option for Canelo. But how many people really know who Dimitri Bivol is yet? Like, maybe you could rehab David Lemieux at 168? He was having trouble making weight at middleweight forever. I'm not even sure he, you know, he needs to have several fights just so you can depend on him to promote a big fight. I mean, that's a huge risk to depend on him to do anything right now. He's got to show you he can make weight and come in and be a professional. And Canelo has nine fights left on his deal, and it, it starts to get thin really quickly. None of these guys that we're talking about are major subscription drivers either. Like, Can Canelo himself is the sub-driver. But what really helps you break through is obviously when you pair with other fighters that have that profile. I don't even know what number of question on you know we're on right now, but like we haven't even asked yet what happens if Canelo loses to Kovalev? Like, do you have some kind of promotional deal with main events, or do you get options on Kovalev? Because it sounds kind of like TR's, you know, Top Rank's going to be involved. Like, how much longer does Top Rank have Kovalev? I mean, he was supposed to fight Anthony Yard that was going to be on ESPN Plus this summer, and through interviews, it's kind of like okay, well. Top Rank would be involved in the co-promotion if Kovalev fought Canelo, and then he would go back to ESPN, I guess? I don't even know. I mean, like, is there a scenario where Kovalev can beat Canelo and then just go back and keep fighting on ESPN? I mean, that, I don't know if that'd be super disastrous for DAZN because they're not really invested in, in light heavyweight, but of course they wouldn't want whoever beats Canelo to just go back on ESPN and fight on another network. Like, if they're going to put Canelo in a fight... They want to make sure that they get the losers, you know, or get his opponent's next fight in case his opponent wins. 
And this could go a lot of different ways. And depending on how it goes, it could either be a home run or a train wreck for DAZN, you know, quite frankly, or ESPN, depending on the details. I mean, I think what I think is most likely, I think Canelo is probably smart enough to go in and have a game plan against Kovalev similar to what Andre Ward did, like pull out a tight victory, go to the body, maybe even get him out of there. But, like, let's be clear, like, there's a pathway where Canelo could come up, win a title off Kovalev, take it with him to the zone, and then all of a sudden, a month ago, it seemed like top-ranking ESPN had this division on lockdown, and now half the titles are at the zone, and what was supposed to be one of ESPN's most compelling divisions to make quality TV is now a harder sell because Kovalev got beat by a guy two divisions down, and they've lost, you know, now half the belts are gone. I know it's a lot to go through these scenarios and some of them are kind of crazy, but I just think they're fun because even if they're low percentage pathways, the bottom line is Canelo Alvarez and his persona. This is why he's holding up several divisions. This is why he's holding them hostage and he can give to the company that's paying him all this money, like well in advance of $300 million. DAZN is now kind of reliant on Canelo's whimsical feelings towards Triple G and a few other people in the boxing industry. And I mean, this is like a worldwide, essentially, you know, billion-dollar company that has a chance. It's relying on not just Canelo, but the timing of these fights to succeed in its U.S. launch or not. Time really matters for DAZN. If DAZN misses out on that potential home run fall of Canelo Triple G 3 and AJ Ruiz 2, and they don't get enough subs to sort of sustain that deficit spending that they're operating at, I mean, they may not even get the opportunity to get that larger deal with the U.S.-based league that they, you know, that essentially that's what they're gunning for and they, and they want to raise money to do it. Like, they, they need to hit that sub number to even enter the conversation. And it matters whether they do it in 2019 or 2020. To have to wait a whole other year to start those conversations is tough. I mean, obviously with PBC strength at 168 and top rank strength at light heavyweight, like Canelo's kind of playing with fire there. Because they, DAZN clearly planned for Canelo to take several big fights at middleweight before moving up to those tougher weight class. It's hard to pivot. They've spent... I mean, they spent $100 million on Triple G. It's, it's, it's tough to pivot once you write that check. I mean, there's a scenario here where PBC has Ruiz who beats... If, if Ruiz beats AJ in the rematch and then leaves for PBC platforms and Canelo moves up to light heavyweight and loses to Kovalev and then stays at 168 permanently, and after a fight or two, there's no... Nobody left on the zone, so they have to pay for a PBC fighter. Let's just say Caleb Plant, <clears throat> for argument's sake, if Caleb Plant beats Canelo and then he beats him in the rematch, and and, can, and he beats Canelo twice, like in the first fight and then the rematch, similar to what Andy Ruiz is doing. I mean, you can go back there and say, hey, top ranking ESPN built a fighter, you know, and, and with main events too, obviously built a fighter for their platform off the zone, and then PBC built two legit superstars off the back of all that to zone money. The real crazy thing here is that Canelo probably isn't thinking about all these DAZN's, you know, ramifications. Like, he's 
probably thinking about Triple G legacy. He probably loves the fact that he controls Triple G's legacy right now. I mean, if he just waits a year to fight Triple G, he becomes a bigger favorite against Triple G just because of the aging curve. He makes it much more likely that Jacobs would win a rematch against Triple G or Andre would win a fight against Triple G. That would hurt Triple G's legacy. Canelo is doing what Floyd used to do. He's exercising his power as the most, really easily the most powerful player in the sport. I mean, you're seeing that right now. The difference here it is, is that he's not just playing with pay-per-view money anymore, which only affects him. Like, he's playing with the zone platform money in multiple weight classes, and it affects everyone. One other quick side note here. The WC and that franchise champ designation thing, to Canelo, they, they made Charlo the full champion. That was just a way of the WBC not having to mandate a title fight with their interim champ in Charlo and then their real champ in Canelo. Obviously, they need the Canelo belt fee every time he fights. I don't really, I mean, obviously, this is egregious, but I don't, I'm not going to come down from Mount Pius here and attack sanctioning organizations. I've said before in this podcast, I was just as guilty as anyone of marketing a fight as a title fight when you needed to. Titles are important. Um, this is obviously the type of just utter crap that delegitimizes them. And also, I think, <laughs> I just thought it was hilarious. I mean, one of the more tone-deaf ways you can come out and say something is the WBC made a point to say that this happened in Hawaii. It just sort of sounded like they were literally drinking at the pool on a swanky vacation, and they came up with a way to get sanctioning fees from fighters at middleweight and possibly other weights without forcing them to fight each other. It's just a way of them circumventing their different broadcasting universes. And I'm not justifying this. I'm just saying it. Canelo, though, is affecting a lot here. And do I think a Kovalev fight is the worst thing that could happen? No, I don't. No, I don't. I think a Smith fight, especially if he loses to Smith, would really be tough. And and we're talking, I mean, Canelo faces serious size disadvantages once he moves up to 168. He's a great fighter. There's no question about it. And I'm sure he will test the limits. And I applaud him for doing so. But, oh, man, he is playing with fire with the zone. Oh, man. There are so many ways that this could go wrong for the zone. And I can't wait just to see how this shakes out because all these crazy theoretical things that I went through, even once we find out which way this actually happens and we start lining up fights for other guys, there are still probably lots, lots of ways where this could go wrong. Or right. I mean, this could go really right for zone too. I want to be clear on that. But I think it's much more likely if this happens that things can go wrong. And I think it's just, it, it's a fun universe to explore. But, okay, enough on that. I'm rambling again. I'm over an hour. I don't know how I do this, guys. I say this every episode. I really don't know how I do this. Let's move on to the preview section. Not a lot of action over the 4th of July holiday, which is usually the case in boxing. UFC also traditionally puts on a good show that weekend that sort of 
ends up owning the combat sports uh, combat sport universe. There are two foreign streaming cards: uh, Lawrence Okali fighting Jack Massey, and Anthony Fowler fighting Brian Rose on the zone. Uh, and there's an ESPN Plus show from Kazakhstan that at least has a title fight with Nordin Ubali versus Arthur Villanueva. Nothing else that notable. Uh, Fowler is an eight to one favorite. Okali is like a twelve or fifteen to one favorite in that range. The following weekend, there are quite a few shows on from all over the world. <clears throat> on Friday, July 12th from Osaka, Japan on ESPN Plus, Rob Brandt is fighting Ryoto Murata in a rematch for Brandt's WBA regular title that would have been a lot more significant for ESPN had top ranking ESPN signed you know, Triple G or one of the other major middleweight free agents a few months ago. Still, the first fight was very good. This should be another very good fight. ESPN Plus will also have a fight card from England that has Rocky Fielding, Martin Murray, and Terry Flanagan, but none of whom are facing significant opponents. There is a Showbox card without major fighters as well. I'm definitely not touching that Amir Khan fight. On Saturday, July 13th, a really busy day. Three sort of middling U.S.-based cards, but a good one from the U.K. On ESPN Plus... Daniel Dubois is fighting Nathan Gorman. Joe Joyce is fighting Bryant Jennings. These are real fights. These This could very easily be the most entertaining boxing we'll watch over this two-week stretch. And, and maybe for the, you know, if you count in the last two weeks, this could be the best fight card in a month or, or, or even more. Um, Joe Joyce is like a three or four to one favorite over Jennings. It is He started that way. It's increasing a little bit. Dubois is like a 2-1 to one favorite over Gorman. It's just worth mentioning, in the boxing world right now, we almost never, this is only a UK thing for the most part, we almost never see cards in the US where two closely matched heavyweights are fighting each other. Um, we almost never see cards where there's actually two closely matched heavyweight fights on, it, on the same card. And, I, you know, especially with Joyce and Dubois and Gorman, like they are early in their careers. I know Joyce is older. It We're talking heavyweights here. These guys are heavyweights. If something breaks right for them in the grand scheme of things, they could be in major title fights coming up soon. I'm not even kidding when I say that. I mean, Andy Ruiz is a perfect example of it. Heavyweight prospects in boxing right now, they are like college football quarterbacks. One good season and even like, Decent measurables or decent way to sell a fight, and you could be on your way to being a first-round draft pick and a multimillionaire. I mean, these guys, one good outing and a couple things break right, they could be in a title fight. And like I've said numerous times on this show, and I think you know other people have now, you know, I think this is a common theme. I don't want to sit here and say I'm the one who said it first. Every every fighter at heavyweight has it's so. There are major weaknesses to all the big fighters. And do I think these guys are quite ready for the big, big heavyweights right now? No, I don't. But this is a competitive fight card, and these you could come out of this and within a year see these guys really lined up for big fights. I mean, it's actually, this fight, it's actually at the O2 Arena in London. So anyways, enough hyping that card up. I just, I really like it. And then when you move on, it's a, it's a lot of what we've seen over the last two weeks. On ESPN, Shakur Stevenson's fighting Hiron Sikoris at Featherweight from Newark. Josh Greer versus Nikolai Potapov. 
uh, is at bantamweight. That's on the undercard on DAZN from Carson, California. Ray Vargas is defending his WBC junior featherweight title against Tomaki Kameda. Also on the card, Diego De La Hoya versus Ronnie Rios, a junior featherweight on FS1. Jamal James taking on Antonio DeMarco at welterweight. And then Robert Hellenius versus Gerald Washington at heavyweight. Uh, Carlos Balderas, Charles Martin, a few of the Russell brothers are also on that FS1 card. And maybe I'm maybe I'm taking maybe I'm not giving this day of fights that much credit. I mean, look, Ray Vargas against Kameda is a good fight. Like both guys have a strong pedigree. Stevenson is in the process of moving from prospect to sort of anchoring a show on ESPN. And I mean, this isn't the most major test you can see for him, but uh, you know, Stevenson is a really a a great prospect to keep an eye on. I'd like to see his development as it comes. I don't know how much we'll learn from this, but we'll learn from a TV standpoint because he will be anchoring a show. You know, Jamal James and Tony DeMarco, not sure how much that fight means. It should be good TV, though. Uh, you know, in the undercard, Hellenius versus Gerald Washington. I mean, crazy to say, like, that that fight probably would have mattered a lot more five years ago. I'm still semi-interested in seeing that fight. I mean, with heavyweights, heavyweights are just interesting, I mean, even to bar- hardcore boxing fans. But the most telling thing on all these, there's no odds out on any of these fights yet. None of them really, you, they don't matter enough such that two weeks out you're seeing odds. All right. That'll do it for this episode. I'll be back in two weeks. We will have a ton of fights, at least from that second weekend, to review. Hope you guys like the deep dive. I'm going to cover this situation more. Obviously, middleweight and welterweight and heavyweight, everything that happens now matters tremendously. These are the three-weight classes driving the sport. Let's see what Canelo does. I mean, he's going to he's gonna make a star. He's going to lose one of these fights at some point and make a star out of somebody. <laughs> I... I you know, it's it's crazy to think that he might be fighting Callum Smith. I mean, what a what a potential disaster that could be for DAZN if Canelo fights Callum Smith. We'll see. We'll see. Lots of fun, guys. Talk to you in two weeks. Did you get what you was looking for?